Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well of men and women of faith, but also, Lord, through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit, inspiring this word for our good. So we thank you for this, Lord. We pray you use it to accomplish your ends of comfort for the Christian, repentance for the sinner, and the salvation of the lost. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, we started the Proverbs of Solomon last week, kind of the the bigger portion of the book, which includes a lot of the Proverbs we typically think of. And uh, today, we are going to be looking at something that probably has two different groups of people in this text, or in this room, uh, who have two different views on its subject, which is words. And those two camps uh, often throw rocks at each other as to who is right and who is not right. And the first camp are those who grew up with those beloved cultural proverbs, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, or sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So that's camp one. Words are just that. Words. They have little weight. They don't accomplish much. They don't really shape you. But then there's another group of people who grew up or who are growing up under the mindset that words have an immense weight and power in your lives. If you speak positive, your life will be positive. If you use wrong words around the wrong people, you can cause trauma or harm that's really felt. And you could see this in our own day as this is more of the culture of our day and the drama and the politics that go around how we use language to communicate, how we talk about others and what we hold to be acceptable. And each side, whether words are immensely powerful or whether words are just silly words you can get over, as we pick on each other, our text today actually says that each of you are right and each of you are wrong. It's going to talk about our words and it's going to help us understand what we should think about them. You see, contrary to the words are just words camp, Solomon's Proverbs today are going to show us that words do indeed matter to God. And words do, in fact, have a shaping effect on others and on yourself. But in regards to those who think that words are the most defining experience we have in our lives, Solomon is going to say, whose words and in what way? And the book of Proverbs, if you're familiar with it, it deals a lot with these themes of words, of mouths, of tongues. But actually what's behind this language is something far bigger than just our words. Now we see today in your text, if you read it or you have it in front of you, uh, you see pictures that generally talk of our words. A babbling fool comes to ruin, verses eight and verse 10. The mouth of the righteous brings wisdom, verse 31. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, verse 13. Whoever utters slander is a fool, verse 18. And the tongue of the righteous is of choice silver. That's verse 20. Mouths, lips, utterances, tongues, all these portray the function of communication, the movement, the means of it. But what Solomon is actually doing, when we remember that Proverbs are generally comparing and contrasting to teach a point, 
is we're realizing he's actually bringing something bigger into play here. And you notice this in the comparisons that he's making. In verse six, if you notice, it compares the mouth to the head, which in Hebrew literature was representative of the whole. The mouth is being equated to the functional whole of the person. In verse 20, the tongue is being contrasted with the heart. The tongue displays the heart. There is this holistic unity that our mouths display that says far more about what simply happens when this weird muscle in our mouth begins to twitch around. Jesus himself makes this point in the New Testament when correcting the Pharisees, he says in Matthew 15 that it's nothing that goes into the body which defiles you, but that which comes out of the body. Matthew 15 verse 18, he says that what comes out of the mouth is what defiles the person, and what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Here, what Jesus is actually doing, he's not inventing something new. He's not, God wasn't up in heaven. He's, you know what people need? We need this new understanding of how we understand our hearts. Maybe we could say our tongue helps. No, Jesus is actually pulling from Proverbs. He is pulling from this reality that Solomon is talking about here, that our tongues are actually a placeholder for larger things in our lives. And we look at Proverbs, there are generally three things, and for the sake of being a Baptist and trying to help us, they all start with the letter H. Um, these three things that our tongues typically help us understand are our hearts, our habits, and our hopes. There's what we love and what we believe, our habits and how we act, and our hopes being what's going to happen and why do I think that's going to happen. And today we're going to kind of look at this holistic unity of our words And we're going to see it in three ways. In verses 6 through 10, so we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 10. Verses 6 through 10, we're going to see our words and God's words. Then in verses 11 through 21, we're going to see our words and the lives of others. And then lastly, we're going to look at our words and our own lives. So it's going to be verses 22 through 32. And so we're going to begin by looking at the first point that Solomon's going to make here, and this is looking at our words and God's words. So uh, let me read for us verses six through 10. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. For those who are culturally aware, the best, this isn't on my notes, the best description for what he's really talking about here, the mouth of the, or the, the name of the wicked will rot, is Solomon is already talking about the Karens online. How a single name can actually plague a society. And so I, anyway, that's free. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. You're better off for it, believe me. Um, anyway, uh, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. So again, we're looking at these contrasts here, and when we see this, we see an innate contrast. Because first, what is the wicked doing? When it's talking about the wicked's mouths and the wicked's wicked's words, it's constantly talking. It's babbling like a baby. That word babbling, just it's speaking of the lips. The lips are never ending. Babbling to its ruin, we see in verse 8. Babbling to their end, we see in verse 10. A wicked mouth concealing violence. The wicked cannot keep their mouth shut, and no one is better because of it. Everyone is suffering. But did you notice what Solomon didn't say in this opening section? 
We would expect him to say, as we'll see in a little bit, where he says that the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, but the words of the wise bring peace. Or the babbling mouth of the fool brings ruin, but the straightforward mouth of the wise brings healing. As we move on, Solomon is going to talk about what the wise say, but what's remarkably interesting is in this first passage, the wise are seen as talking endlessly, or the the wicked are seen as talking endlessly, but what are the wise doing? He's not actually talking about the words of the wicked and the words of the wise. What he's actually pointing us to is he's saying, look at what the wise, or look at what the wicked are saying, but then he's actually saying, look at what the wise are hearing. In this passage, the wise man, in contrast to the fool, is listening. Look at Proverbs 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The fool starts in the easy, natural place. It starts with what's inside of us. It starts with our own words, our own perspectives, our own priorities. But the wise in heart starts with God's word. He actually receives and submits to the word of another. How counterintuitive is this? Because here we see this reckless, wicked person running their mouths, ruining an entire community. And we would think that to combat that, we loose the tongue of the wise to go about and meet his irreverent babble with more holy babble. But what actually starts, before we ever get to speaking, we're gonna get there, but what starts is in the face of a culture which is incessantly speaking, the wise look to what God has already said. Specifically, it says here's the commands, which what is he referencing to? We've talked about this a lot in Proverbs. He's referencing the law. And for the ancient Israelite, the law was not this dead book of legal literature, though it did include laws. The law was actually a reminder of God's faithfulness to them. The law affirmed what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, where he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The law says, we have a king. We once were subjected to a king who didn't care about us, but by God's grace, he brought us out, he delivered us, and he gave us rules that lead to flourishing. The law bound, but it bound people to the goodness of God's freedom. And so when we see this, we can begin to zoom out to our own world And we could see that words are everywhere. I was thinking this morning, can we think of a culture in human history that has more words floating around? I don't think we can. In the past, if you left a book or a library or a conversation, you were detached from any words apart from your own. And now, everywhere we go, we've got these machines in our pockets that bring words into our life. There are 1.7 billion web pages on the internet. Of those 1.7 billion web pages filled with words, there are an additional 1.7 million podcasts that we listen to on our way to work and on our walks and while we're at the gym. That's in addition to the literal thousands of social media posts we read in a day, plus the radio commercials we hear, the billboards we take in, and the commercials we see. We live in a culture of babbling. We cannot escape words. And words call us to respond by believing them, by challenging them, by applying them, by obeying them, by scoffing at them, 
But without receiving God's word, our response to those words will be just as much a foolish babble. We'll incur just as much ruin in our lives because our world calls us to listen with every word and every access point we give them. And what they're asking you to do is to respond immediately. To meet constant talk with the response of constant talk. But the wise know in the face of a world which is trying to win you to a million different things at one time, the wise know whose words matter most. Whose words bring organization and direction in a chaotic world. And this is really important for us when we begin to understand God's word. When we talk of God's word, it can speak of the gospel, it can speak of Jesus who was the word incarnate, but kind of the biggest thing is God's word, God's word, his word. I keep using word to describe the word and it's not helpful in this case. Um, the, The written words of the Bible. And so often it's easy for us to read a good Christian book, to spend time in God's word, but we read God's word like we would read any other cultural word. And that's that we generally, we give a little head nod to who the author is and what authority it has in our life. But besides that, all the words we encounter are relatively equal. But what stands behind this word is God himself and that changes everything. We don't just encounter God's word like we encounter the words of fools. We encounter God's word as a gift to us given by God himself. This isn't just a secular problem that we wrestle with detaching weight from words. And it's also not a new problem. In 16, or 1865, Charles Bridges wrote of the potential Christians had to know words without knowing the one who's behind the words. He says this. He says, we find him a man of creeds and doctrines, not of prayer, asking curious questions rather than listening to plain truths, wanting to know events rather than duties, occupied with other men's business to the neglect of his own. In this vagrant spirit, with all his thoughts outward bound, that is, he's not considering God, he wanders from church to church and from house to house, a prating fool upon religion, bold in his own conceit, while his life and temper fearfully contradict his fluent tongue. Too blind to respect himself, too proud to listen to counsel, he will surely fall into disgrace, beaten with the rod of his own foolishness. Let me look at this picture as a beacon against the folly of my own heart. Young Christian, beware of a religion without humility, consistency, and love because you're separated from a close walking with God. In other words, what is he saying here? He's saying that we could know, it's possible to know all the words and have all the words, but at the same time neglect the God who is giving you these words. To refuse to encounter these in the relational context which the the Israelite would and which the Christian does when we see God's faithfulness in his word. So the question we have that Solomon is proposing to us is when you encounter the chatter of the world and what it calls from you, Do you take it first and your response to it, to God's word? Do you ask yourself consciously the question of how does God's word help me think about this? And how does God's faithfulness in Jesus shape the way I act to it? We did this with my daughter this week. She came home with something from school that said free to be you. And we said, 
Yes, but how do we understand freedom according to what God says? How can we see this rightly? And Jesus himself showed this thoughtfulness actually in what he didn't say. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 20 through 23, we read this. Uh, for, sorry, sorry, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so you might consider in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He wasn't the babbler. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, when Jesus was put on trial for his very life, he didn't speak. But, this is really important, he didn't do nothing. What gave him the ability to not speak? That he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He relationally knew the God who was behind all of the words he knew as the very son of God. And it changed what he did with his words. You see, it's the reliance upon God that loosed Jesus to say the very things that riled up his opponents. But it was also a reliance on God that restrained Jesus' tongue among the same counsel that would soon condemn him. Dear Christian, we have the wonderful privilege of the most defining words about you being Jesus' words about you. You see, to put your trust in Jesus is to lay down your own supremacy and instead to take up the world's greatest advocate, the one who speaks in your defense. You see, the reason why Jesus didn't defend himself before a council of people seeking to put him to death was because Jesus understood that his mission and the point of his communication and the goal of all of his words was not to defend himself before men, but actually to defend believers before God. That Jesus would speak in our defense. There is no rest from the words which cause us frustration and fear and condemnation in our world. Words might be weighty, but they are a dime a dozen, and we will not escape them. But here is the commendation of Jesus Christ, who speaks in our defense before God because he suffered for our sins. To be found in Jesus is to have new words ascribed to you. It is to be called a child of the living God. It is have to, to have Jesus take up words for you daily as an intercessor before God to look at you and say, he was once a sinner, though his sins were as scarlet, I have washed them whiter than snow. That's the beauty of having Christ speak for you is that we get to trust in this God. But here, Solomon is after actually this enduring aspect of that. Because not only as Christians do we get to have Christ speak for us, but as Christians, we have the privilege of Christ speaking to us. He wants to be known. He wants us to go to his word. And whatever comes out is changed by this. How do we change our speech how do we learn to talk differently? We become familiar with God's speech in the gospel and in his word. 
I have this really weird quirk, which probably doesn't surprise any of you that I have weird quirks. Um, and it comes out when I'm around people who have a southern accent. I don't know why, and I can't control it, but when I'm around people who have a southern accent, I start lengthening my vowels, talking a little slower, little less space between my syllables. <laughs> and my wife is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. But what's weird in a social context is wonderful in a Christian one. <laughs> that as we get to spend time with God in his word, we begin to be changed by the person we know in here. That it actually begins to come out, not without intention, but certainly in ways that we cannot describe. And what happens when we begin to know God by submitting our heart to his word? Look at what happens in Proverbs 10, 11a. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. At last, the wise man speaks. Having considered the God who made him and the words given to him by grace, seeing God's faithfulness, now his mouth is loosed. Not into a babbling brook with little to offer, but into a fountain of life that others might see and enjoy. And this is our second point today, our words and the lives of others. Not only does the wise person begin with God's words instead of his own, but the wise person realizes that whatever words he has are meant to be used to the benefit of those around him. And what I want you to do as we look at this text is to consider the corporate, meaning the communal impact the words and the habits of the wise have on those around them. So let's read verses 11 through 21. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of those who lack sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is in his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, and the gain of wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. You see, words matter. Words have an effect on you and on the community that's around you. I know we just read this, but I want to just paraphrase for us some of these Proverbs we just read to see how our words affect those around us. We see that to the one with understanding of God's words, what he adds to his community with understanding on his lips is wisdom. But the fool forces those around him to constantly discipline him and chastise him. He brings a burden, not a blessing. The wise store up knowledge like a distribution warehouse ready to give to those who have need. The mouth of a fool is like a piggy bank with the bottom cut out of it where it causes ruin to come quickly because it can't provide anything. 
The wise man contributes to the wealth, what says here, the strength of his city. He takes pride in the corporate good that he actively participates in and is proud of his contribution to the community. The poor man contributes not, but only adds to the poverty of those around him. The wise man leads others on the way of life, but the fool, and notice this, this is why we see our mouth is more than just what we say, but it's a window into our hearts, our hopes, and our habits. Without saying a word, the fool leads others astray. His message is heard loud and clear, even if not vocalized. The fool might think himself to be holy because the fool has somebody who he hates, but he doesn't let that person know he hates them. How generous. Until he turns and gossips to someone else about that person he hates, and he has lying lips. We see the fool knows only endless speaking, which leads to sin. The wise know restraint. The wise provides a monetary and beautiful benefit to a society like choice silver, but the heart of the fool adds no value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, many people. But the fool dies because he doesn't have food for himself, let alone to share with anyone. Here's the beauty of this book. You get to take it home with you. You get to take Bibles home with you all the time. It's on your phone. It's on our computer. We, we have copies. If you don't talk to us, we want to give you one. But like, you actually get to take home these Proverbs with you, and you get to consider them. Like, if, you, if, you, if we could spend an hour on each of these Proverbs, and for your sake, we won't. But that's what you get to do when you take this home. These Proverbs are not like Gatorade to be gulped down after a race. This is where you sit down, and you sip on these like a good cup of coffee, and you consider them, and you write about the mouthfeel and the tasting notes that are there. Because these things are wonderfully diverse. Because if you notice, some of the wise man's activities include him speaking. And some of the wise person's activities include him not speaking. Who's to decide? The wise man, after he considers this. After he takes it home and in consulting God in prayer and in thinking about this, he makes the best decision he can. But here's the general thing that's seen across all of these, even though they have different points of application. And that's that what we can see clearly is the wise bless their community with what they communicate and participate in and the fool provides only want, pain, and ruin. The apostle James speaks of this in James chapter three, verses nine through 12, when he says this, with it, and so he's speaking of our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So here's this wonderful challenge and encouragement in the gospel that James is talking about. James, on one hand, points out that our tongues need to not labor for wickedness or cursing, but instead for blessing. But then he adds these obvious points of contrast. You don't need to be a botanist to follow James' logic. Does an olive tree produce figs? No. Does a freshwater stream magically begin to produce salt water? No. What's his point? Well, first, he's showing how out of place a destructive tongue is to a Christian community. It makes no sense here. 
It makes as little sense as a fig tree that can produce olives. But secondly, we see the blessing of conversion. And that, that is that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been changed to produce fruit in accordance to your new identity in Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to you as an olive tree and say, you better start producing figs or judgment's gonna come. Because that's impossible. But instead, Jesus comes and he grafts us into himself so that we can produce fruit according to him. According to this new reality. And the word of God takes us and turns us outwards. And this other oriented building up, this, this uh, adding to a community by blessing, isn't shaped by what the world says builds up. It sounds like the same thing. It sounds like encouragement. It sounds like blessing. It sounds like having a nice tongue. But the Bible actually tells us what it looks like to do this with our tongues. It means that when we encourage those around us, the encouragement we give as the church to each other is different than just the cultural platitudes or blanket affirmations that culture gives. We encourage people, we bless people by specifically bringing the gospel to bear in our conversations. A wonderful example of this, my daughter had her birthday this past week, she's eight, um, and one of you wrote her a card, the rest of you didn't, so shame on you. The point of application, no. Um, but, but it was this wonderful thing where actually it was one of our college students who, who wrote my daughter a card and in it, he didn't just affirm Adley. He affirmed her as a sister in Christ and wrote about his excitement to see how she would show others Jesus and what a wonderful way to use our words to encourage in a distinctly Christian way. To build up in a way that actually matters and attaches a hope past politeness. But this also means that we say hard things to each other. When people are walking in the path of foolishness, when they are harming others and themselves, the wise man learns to call back, to bring to repentance those around us. And here's why we need this text today. Not more than ever. I was gonna say more than ever. It's not more than ever. This is a common problem. But this is why we need the text specifically today. When Solomon is talking about the wise man contributing to his strong city, the greatest analogy, if we're to bring that to today, is not actually our broader city. It's actually the church. You see, in Solomon's day in Israel, the cities were predominantly these exclusively Jewish communities where they would gather together and they would uphold the law together and they would go to the temple together and they would help each other rely on God and fulfill the law. And so when Solomon speaks of contributing with words to his city, it's, we should think eventually how our words benefit our greater city, Missoula. But specifically here, we should first of all be challenged at how we're contributing to the good of our church, the good of that community where we are trying to follow and please God together. We live in a world which, not surprising to any of us, is becoming increasingly post-Christian, which means we as the church need to become incredibly pro-Christian. This is a distinct place where we celebrate what we've been one to and we encourage one another at a distinctly Christian level in a world that is going to increasingly find Christians distasteful. And that's what membership actively seeks to do at Sovereign Hope. If you've never been a member here, if you've gone here and this is your church home and you're not a member, please talk to me or one of the other elders of what that looks like because what members do is we make commitments to God, but we also make commitments to each other, three specific ones. And that is that we together believe God's word. 
We belong together as a Christian community and we become more Christ-like together through holiness. The context of this church is that we are helping each other do this and we are participating in a way that is beneficial with our words and with our habits. And there's been this shift that has happened um, in the last several hundred years in Western thought of how an individual considers themselves. It used to be that the primary way you understood your life, your purpose, you know, why I'm here, these big existential questions that Taylor Swift sings about, you, you would look and say, how do I belong to my religion? However I relate to my religion is how I relate to the world. And then the enlightenment came and Broadly, we said, science is good, religion is bad. We wrestled with this existential crisis. We wrote away God and we said, okay, religion didn't work. So now we find our sense of belonging and personal organization in the society we belong to. And this is where we get all these neat, like enlightenment ethics that we don't know why we do it, but we know we're supposed to act politely in these ways. It's because it helps us contribute to a culture. It helps us function as a member of society. But now there's been this additional shift where we've turned not just away from God, we've turned away from the community, we've actually turned inward into oneself where the primary way in which we, and I say we, because even though we're of different demographics, our cultural expression today is this. And so we're being taught this, whether we believe it, is that our greatest sense of pleasure and belonging in this world is finding the answer to our own personal quest for holiness, or for happiness. If we're holiness, that's dope, but it's not. Um, for, for happiness, that we are the center of our world. And while we like community and maybe God plays a role, it's only a role in far as it advances me personally. But what we see here is there's a problem when you begin to be the center of your own life. But here we could see how God is inverting this order because the wise man starts first with God, receiving what God has given turns secondly to his role in the community, specifically that of fellow believers. And then lastly, now he looks at your own life. And what Solomon says is when you see it this way, you're actually getting what you've always wanted. But you're seeing God rightly and others rightly. Because look at what he says in verses 22 through 24. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to the fool but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. The world says, live for your own greatest pleasure, and you'll be happy. So actually the word joke there, depending on what translation you have, it might say it is his pleasure, it is his sport, meaning when it's saying joke, it's not saying that this is the humor of the wicked. But it's saying like, this is where he gets laughter. This is where he gets happiness. This is where he gets pleasure. The wicked look and say, in doing wrong, I am getting the comfort I want. But the righteous see that their pleasure is understanding what God has given. And that in doing that, they get what they've always wanted. They find joy in what God has given. This is our last point today. This is our words and our own lives. And in this passage, what we're going to see is Solomon is speaking about the end. He's speaking about what hope your current course of life can actually have. Will it be joyful? Will it be sorrowful? Will it be enduring? Will it be fleeting? Will you be saved or will you be cut off? And listen to what he says, verses 31, or excuse me, verses 25 through 32. 
When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. And so here we see this wonderful truth that we need to hear today. And that is that the world says, if you want happiness, look in to your own heart, live for your own ends, and then you'll finally find it. But what the Bible says is crucify yourself. Consider God's words. Fear the Lord, and you will receive the desires of your heart. If you want to make it in this world, Proverbs, what we've seen throughout Proverbs, it's not that life has option 1A, that's Christianity. Option uh, 1B is living for yourself. Option 2C is being the most depraved person in the world. There are two options. There are those who get pleasure in following Christ. And there are those who are destroyed. And if you want to be those who get the pleasure of Jesus, we come by grace and we fear this God. In a relational sense, we say, I have problems. I have tried the wickedness of the world. When it says that, uh, that the blessing of the Lord is rich and he adds no sorrow to it, another word for sorrow is he adds no toil. We toil so much trying to get what we want out of this world. But God, when he calls us by grace to the fountain of salvation in Jesus Christ, he adds no toil. Why? Because Jesus toiled for you. And so we can come and have this by grace and rest from all of the work of trying to prove yourself smarter than the God who created you. We come and we get a reward where we will not be removed from the land. When he's talking about this, he's speaking in this covenantal sense where Israel's greatest good was life in this promised land where God would bless them and they would flourish and they would invite others in. That promise for those who live according to Christ's mercy, you will not be uprooted from that. But the wicked will be removed. This is incredibly counterintuitive to what the world says. The world says whoever wants his life, get it on your own means. The gospel says whoever wants his life must lose it. And it's so counterintuitive that you can't do it on your own. God has to be gracious to your heart to see the wonderful inversion of this text. Unless we, like the wise man, receive God's word in the gospel, we will never see God as trustworthy. Because it's only in Jesus where we see that even in the world's most painful circumstances, God is laboring for your good. Even in death, God is planning to bring you resurrected life. Even in Jesus, we see that those who are once far off from God are, are brought back to God's satisfying presence. When we see God as trustworthy in sending Jesus to pay the price for our sins and to win us back to God, we now have the privilege of walking in obedience to him. And look at the hope that lies behind this in verse 28. Right, This one I just quoted. It says, the hope of the righteous brings joy, 
but the expectation of the wicked will perish. What is your hope for those who follow Jesus when it's hard, when it's difficult, when the babbling world tells you to do something else? What is held out for you? Joy. The joy that comes in being saved by Jesus. Now here's the kicker. This is why I love Proverbs because we have just drifted into this holistic Life or death, pleasure or passing, and and there's glory and there's discipline and there's destruction. There are these ultimate categories of life and death. But Solomon's still talking about our words. Look at how he concludes in verses 31 and 32. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Even though Solomon drifts to the most extreme, he comes back to what is most common, doesn't he? To our words. Now, we can't see our own souls to assess it. If we could, that would be nice because we wanna make sure we're on this side of this equation of Proverbs 10 and not the other side. To know and see, where do I stand? This is the beauty of Proverbs 10. Solomon knows you can't see your soul. But here he's saying to you, but you can't hear it. You can hear it with your words. And what it says about your hearts and your habits and your hopes. If any of you have ever heard your voice recorded, what's the number one question you say? Do I really sound like that? <laughs> Solomon is holding this up for you. So you could say, do I really sound like that? Is this what my heart trusts in? Is this my habit of loving others? And is this my hope that this is the greatest life of joy there ever is because of what Christ has won for me? And so here's the thing. If we don't sound like this, you do have a responsibility And that is to repent. That is to go to God and to ask for more grace. But as we see Jesus far more than capable of making up for our lack and atoning for our sins, we find him more and more faithful, which makes us more and more zealous to walk in this path. Repentance is a privilege with a God as big as this. And so let us as a church sound like this to each other. Sound like this to our city so that we might see, hear, and know the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that today in hearing Solomon's words, we get the privilege of hearing our own souls. And Lord, where that might lead us to despair, the gospel says that it can lead us to repentance. So Lord, we pray that even today as we stack chairs and speak to one another, that our words will be different. That we contribute to the wealth of this city because we have received your commandments in the gospel. We know how seriously you treasure what we say, what we don't say, what we live and what we hope for. We pray we are distinct for your sake. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.